the 11th episode of the Loose Threads podcast. Joining me today is Vishal Melwani, the CEO and co-founder of Combatant Gentlemen, a brand specializing in suiting essentials that's using technology to scale globally. We had a really awesome talk about how technology has allowed them to do things that emerging brands usually can't, what it's like to focus on a core market such as suiting essentials, and how removing themselves from all the noise in New York and San Francisco has allowed them to focus on building a lasting company. Here's my talk with Vishal Melwani. So yeah, I'm curious to hear what's kind of the, the founding story in a nutshell of Combatant Gentlemen. Yeah, we're right over four years old. We'll be five in February of 2017. So we started with the idea that we wanted to start a direct consumer brand that was focused on men's corporate essentials. At the time, you know, we saw just pretty large white space in fashion and in retail. And a lot of my buddies were graduating law school and B school and, and had an immense amount of debt and, you know, and all this stuff. And they were getting their first places in the city and all that kind of stuff. And the last thing they wanted to do was spend their money on clothes. So at the same time, they really needed to look good for their first real job and going to men's warehouse and, and that kind of stuff wouldn't suffice. At the same time, going to Hugo Boss wasn't cost friendly as well. So we started the brand in around 2012, just selling shirts and ties. And that really kind of just skyrocketed into the tailored brand that we are today, selling predominantly suits, uh, still shirts and ties and all that kind of good stuff. And then we've branched out into denim and all that good stuff in the past couple of years. And it's now grown quite substantially. But for us, my background is in the fashion space. So I'm not the typical startup guy, only done retail and retail oriented brand stuff. Since I graduated college, I went to UCI just down the street from here and then went over to Japan to work at a big trading firm over there. Came back to SoCal after about a couple of years and started my own trading firm in which we did a lot of production for a lot of urban and streetwear brands and then sold that to a Chinese trading firm and just kind of been in supply chain, that kind of wholesale game my whole life. I'm a third generation tailor. So my dad apprenticed me. He's a master tailor for, he apprenticed me for about Anywhere from 15 to 17 years, I guess he's still apprenticing me because he still thinks my, my stuff sucks. Um, so, you know, really focused around the back end of fashion, which is the supply chain, the numbers, all that kind of stuff. And that's what's let us scale over here. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So you, you mentioned a bit about kind of your background and being in this industry for almost 20 years, I guess, before. Yeah. I'm curious, yeah, to talk a bit about more of that. And yeah. kind of what are some of the yeah. lessons you learned that now inform Combat Gen today? De yeah, definitely. So like I said, my dad's a master tailor, but what he's most known for is that he and my family were the only Johnny Versace franchise boutique owners on the West Coast for about almost 25 years in total. Had about close to 30 stores up and down the, the Western Seaboard, really focused on high-end couture and high-end tailoring. So I grew up in this business. I grew up, myself and my co-founder Mo, we grew up in the back, you know, stock rooms from a young age, moving boxes, seeing inventory, all that kind of good stuff. Anything an immigrant family would make you do, we did. And kind of learned the idea of what brand was from a really early stage. So I spent a lot of my time, my childhood in, in Hong Kong and my parents have owned factories and all that kind of good stuff. So it would always amaze me to see how much it costed to make goods and then how much people were buying them for. And these enormous markups was always something that was really interesting to me. But I thought what people were buying was almost the limerence, I guess you could say. It wasn't necessarily the product or the good, the final end good. It was really about what that brand was resonating. And, and the idea to me just kind of blew my mind all the way through college where it was like, look, if we can build the same quality product as these couture guys and, and sell it at an affordable cost, because you know, for me as a millennial and for my friends as millennials, price is the biggest thing. And that's kind of where 
that mindset came from. So I know the couture space really, really well, I guess better than I'd, I'd want to know it, but I spent a lot of time watching people spend an egregious amount of money on something that costed, you know, a quarter or even less than the price tag was. So it was just crazy to see. Totally. I'm curious kind of what was the process for starting this in just kind of what it looked like in the early days and then kind of how yeah. it's evolved to where it is today. Yeah. So, you know, in the early days, it was really about building a brand, like I said, that solved a major problem. At the time, there wasn't very many direct consumer. I think it was Nasty Gal was out, Bonobos was doing their thing in Warby. And we were kind of in that class and, you know, we were the quiet guys who, you know, we didn't have any funding at first. We kind of bootstrapped our way into the to the marketplace. And it took us a little while to get up and running. And really what we focused on was the quality ratio to, to price on the product. It was really about how, as entrepreneurs, do we get in? Do we build an amazing product and do it better than anyone else? So we took almost about two years to get the product down right and really kind of make sure that we were ready for scale. And a lot of the early days were about technology. How can we use the data that we have to help us scale as a young company? We believe that, that we were tech first and fashion second because the idea of the clothing was always based around essentials, right? So we didn't have to follow any trends. We, we were non-seasonal, so we mm. didn't really have to go on sale or sell this stuff out in three months. It was really focused on how do we lay this foundation for a strong business that made money and wasn't really focused on venture capital every you know six to eight months. And that's what kind of helped us get to where we are, is really focusing on the rules of business versus, I guess, the, the glamour part totally. of it. So you, you mentioned the words kind of ready for scale from the foundation. Yeah. And I'm curious kind of what led you to that, to yeah. build this brand that is meant to scale as opposed to something that's more boutique or luxurious Correct. or kind of how you ended up positioning the brand and the company in that space that you're yeah. in. Yeah. So we were inspired by the data-driven technologies of people like Uniqlo and mm. Inditex and Zara, those guys. So Scott, Mo, and myself, my two other co-founders, we said, I've owned brands before. I've had brands that are in Nordstrom's and stuff like that and all that kind of good stuff on the wholesale end. And for me, it was it was getting repetitive. And what we saw was the wholesale community kind of dying, right? And a lot of people going immediate. And you see that now in Runway, a lot of people going right to immediate. The idea of fast fashion and sustainable fast fashion was really, really interesting to us. So it was, you know, at the time that Sandro and Maje were coming out and, and we were really inspired by those guys who were these middle tier couture quality brands that were really focused on, again, that fast fashion element or really fashion fast. And that's kind of what we took from it. So we took the time to really implement technology from the ground up and said, hey, how do we leverage our data? How do we leverage our Facebook, our Instagram and all these guys? And how do we take in all these signaling events and then relay it over to our supply chain to create this product in a much quicker manner that's price affordable again. So sure. that's kind of where we took the lead from. Was that almost a starting point? Then the brand was a reflection of that as opposed to the other Correct. way around? Where, yeah. Correct. You know, going direct to consumer, there's a lot you can do in the marketing end and you, there's a lot you can push. But I think overall, what makes a great lifestyle brand is having a certain percentage of the closet, but solving a major problem, right? Like there are already guys out there making t-shirts, whether it was you know, American Apparel or the amazing guys over at Everlane, for example, right? We wanted to create something that had a lasting value in the closet and also had a return on investment for the guy, right? So if I'm wearing these pair of pants and I'm wearing this button down shirt and I got paid today, that is something that's going to be recognizable in the closet and holds value higher than anything you would have in your casual side of your wardrobe. Totally. The word value seems to be Correct. constantly repeated and yeah. kind of the anchoring tenant of a lot Correct. of Correct. Yeah. Being on. being around fashion so much growing up 
to me, it was really scary, especially post-recession, to open up a brand that was focused around exclusively fashion, right? And for me, knowing that I'll probably never do anything in my life that has nothing to do with fashion is very far-fetched. I'm always going to be in some kind of production supply chain or something. We really wanted to focus on the volumized side of things and how can we get to critical mass and then how can we also disrupt the big players in the market, which again are the men's warehouse and the Jose Banks where our friends and our buddies did not and still don't want to shop at. So mm -hmm. we saw this open experience to really kind of levitate this side of the consumer market. I, I feel like there are kind of two types of companies, right? There's the company that's the brand company, that, right. that brand is kind of their leading yeah. tenant. And then there's the company that, as you said, is that supply chain data driven. Yep. And, and I'm curious kind of what importance you see to that yeah. and why that is, let's say, crucial to yeah. getting to that scale. Yeah. So for us, it's always been a gentle push and a pull. And I can't tell you honestly how much percentage over what is, is what's winning because the Evangelman lifestyle that we're trying to exude is definitely seen all over our site and in our content. We found out very early on that our content channel, Unhemmed, was converting customers at a high, high rate, higher than Facebook ads, higher than Instagram ads. Our own content, original content, was killing it for us. So what we wanted to do was how do we put that in as a channel that's organic and is not trying to sell our guy on something all the time, but at the same time, how do we, again, exude greatness when it comes to the quality of the product? So really, for us, it's a gentle push and a pull. We believe in the lifestyle orientation of the brand tremendously. The name is Combatant Gentleman. It is polarizing. And what we wanted our guys to realize was that we understand the struggle that they're going through and the fight they're going through, whether it's to get a raise or get their first home or you know whatever it may be. These are the challenges our guys are going through every day. We hear it all the time. And we wanted to create a brand that was there and understood those pain points so that we can create product and we can create unique content around that. So it's definitely a mix. I would say it's right down the line 50-50. Mm. We spend as much time on content as we do on the back end and the supply chain and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, it, it sounds like the word practical is a very yeah. kind of foundational element of yeah. everything you were trying to do. For us, it's like even from the fashion side, like we'll never make a seersucker suit. I mean, I don't want to say never, but for the most <laughs> right. part, you know, it, it's got to be highly in demand. And and I know there are a lot of brands out there who will push the limits when it comes to that. For us, again, we know that you can go out there and there's a lot of options for different things. But when it comes to a Navy suit that you need to go to work with and you, quite frankly, you cannot wear one from Topshop when you work at Deloitte or something like that, you know, we want to solve those problems. You know, we know there are other places that are more fashion oriented, but for us, it's again, it's the practicality and it's, we want to be the reliance or you guys can rely on us for that specific need. Just like a lot of guys rely on Uniqlo, for example, for like basic undershirts and stuff right. like that. Right. No, it seems to follow that common adage that all the money in fashion is made in core anyway, not in seasonal yes. stuff. And so why not just double down on that? Correct. And Correct. And I think it. a lot of young direct consumer brands miss the boat on that because don't get me wrong. It's fun as shit to see your yeah. logo on stuff. Right. And I think a lot of people get captivated like, oh, we can do this and this and this. And sure, you can. But at the end of the day, for us, it was about filling a void in the market, answering a problem, creating a solution to a problem and also being able to create something that had scalability to it, right? And for us, it was a tailored garment. You know, for other people, it's different things. But, you know, for Warby, it's glasses. It just comes down to doing one thing right, really right. right. And you can build your smaller sub-markets around the other stuff. Like for us, we have a pretty large denim and chinos business. But still, it comes nowhere close to how many suits we do. Totally. I'm curious to kind of talk a bit about what kind of the data and, and all the tech was like really early yeah. on and kind of where you started with that. And then I'm sure we can get into Tower, which is yeah. kind of the, yeah. the so, existence of it today. 
So really early on, we had the idea that, okay, we're going to be all e-commerce. We need to find a good commerce cart that can really scale with us and do a lot of stuff. And, you know, for us at the time, Magento was out of the question. It was just a little bit too pricey for us because, again, we bootstrapped this whole company until we raised our seed round. We knew that we had developers in-house. We always had more developers than anyone in fashion. So we said, okay, well, let's use an open source cart. So we used Spree, Mm -hmm. which is really great experience, really good first cart for us. Shopify wasn't around. So we started using Spree and it was getting the needs met of the company. So it was, you know, simple reporting, inventory management, obviously the cart, the whole nine yards is open source community based on Ruby on Rails. And it was exciting to be able to use that and to grow with that. But I think for us, as we've scaled, what we saw was there is an immense amount of data that's coming in through the woodwork for us. Whether it was social signaling, whether it was just general reporting, you know, what style suit or what colors are moving the best. And we weren't able to control those data processes. We were pulling them out of databases, trying to crunch them ourselves. Our number guys were trying to break things down. And Scott, my CTO, was like, dude, screw it. Like, let's build our own cart so we can pull in this signaling and get really badass reporting. And we call that Tower. So today we run exclusively on our own cart, which is called Tower, which has grown quite substantially with the business. But I think the biggest thing that it does today, I think that a lot of other brands have talked to us about and wanted to see and how it works and, and all that good stuff is real-time supply management, right? So what we wanted to do was I'm the only supply chain guy here, right? And I'm also the CEO. So it was very difficult to be able to juggle those balls. And anyone who does supply chain knows how stressful and demanding that job was. But Scott and I, we live literally one floor above each other still till this day. And he would see me working till three, four in the morning on sending stuff back and forth, purchase orders, all this stuff, you know, tech pack notes and all this stuff to the factories. And he was like, dude, we can literally streamline this in Tower if you want to. So we said, yeah, I didn't know that was possible. I said, yeah, I've worked with ERPs before and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And he just kind of laughed because his background is in supply chain as well. And he's like, no, 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 we'll, we'll do this our way. So he just started basically setting up full-on purchase ordering system right to our factories in Tower itself. Our factories are able to log in, jump in, see what the POs are at, see any notes, alter stuff. And we're also able to make our POs based off of demand that our cart is getting. So, for example, we've kind of alleviated the jobs of a planner. We've alleviated the jobs of merchandisers. We really let our customers dictate Hmm. what and how and how much. Obviously, it's all contingent on how much cash you have on hand and all that kind of good stuff. But we've been able to scale as a nimble team. We're just 25 people. Right till this day. Yeah, and, and I was like, I was like yeah. walking around. I was like, yeah. wait, I was like, where is everyone else? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we have eight enge- full time yeah. engineers. We have more engineers than anybody else in the company. And we have obviously a great marketing team as well. But you know, we it's still eight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We still believe in in letting the technology do its work. And if you develop right and don't get caught up in having a ton of people and foosball tables and ping pong tables and all the bullshit, like you will scale properly and you will make all the money you're making is going to go into developing further and further. So I feel like it's, you know, generally, especially if you look at just like where the industry is today with like excessive markdown, the promotional customer and all this, yeah. it's effectively just a supply and demand matching yeah. problem in that if brands are just making too much stuff that no one is want, exactly. no one wants or they can't find those buyers. Yeah. And so I assume the sell-through and your inventory is so much tighter as a result of that. Exactly, yeah. So as a direct consumer brand, I think a lot of other direct consumer brands will will agree with this. You now have the ability of going on sale when you want to, right? There is no time that you need to or stuff like that. You know, you're able to control your purchase orders on a much deeper level because you're not over producing for these wholesale accounts. 
for wholesale business, you, you got to go into a trade show. They write this order. They go back. You've already placed the PO with your factories. And then boom, they write it down. They say, okay, we're going to cut this in half and we have this and that and all that stuff. So for us, we, again, we let the system tell us how much we need based off of trending, forecasting, a little bit of BI and, and a little bit of machine learning that we're trying to get into right now. But as we move forward, we've let the kind of data tell us how to do it. Of course, everything is a proponent of cash. And, you know, if you have the money to spend on the product, you'll be able to have all that kind of good stuff. But, you know, going into the future and, and prepping for 2017, we're really excited as to where the technology has led us to. So that's the best part for us. Totally. Curious to kind of move into this onto the more vertical integration part. So to me, reading about the company and hearing you talk before, I assume it's fair to say that you were kind of like insanely vertically integrated yeah. as a company. And I'm curious, again, kind of what the impetus was for that and, and yeah. why you saw that as a necessity as opposed to cobbling together the yeah. little points that, tend, yeah. that everyone so tends to. When you're working in in the world of tailored goods and obviously for stuff like denim and t-shirts and stuff like that, that we do a little bit of, you can go to factories and get raw material from makers and all that kind of stuff. But when you're working with suiting and working with mills in Italy and you're working with mills in China and working with mills in the UK, Ireland, Scotland, the whole nine yards, it's very difficult early on to walk in and say, I want this many yards or this many meters, right? So for us, we always had to produce somewhat of the rawest form of raw material, whether it was greasy tops or whether it was raw cotton or all that kind of stuff. And luckily now we've been able to scale way past that, which we're really happy about. But yeah, I mean, we were lucky because, you know, myself coming from a supply chain background, that's how we did it for the big guys anyway, because that was our job as a trading firm. We had to go and source all the way down to the grain, essentially. So we knew how to do it. It was definitely not favorable because you're taking on a lot of liability as a young company. But we knew that it was just a stopgap until we got to the minimums that we needed to hit. Now we're working with some of the best mills, whether it's Barbaris, Canonico, Fortex in Italy, Marzotto in Italy. We're working with amazing, amazing mills now that we're well sur surpassed their minimum order quantity and, and they've been great with us. But very early on, it was really difficult to walk in and be like, I need 80 meters. And they're just looking at you like, get the hell out of yeah. here, man. Like 80 meters, that's going to make you what? Like 40 suits or something. And that's going to do nothing for us, right? Here's our sample book. Cut it out of here and see what you can do with it. Like we always do over here, we just turned lemons into lemonade and, and saw what we could do and kind of worked backwards from there. Very early on, it was very difficult, right? Our styles were limited. We really just wanted to create a benchmark product, which is a $160 suit that could scale. And, and now we're, we're much better off. But yeah, from the very early start, we were doing a lot of crazy crazy shit. So, so it sounds like it started almost as a necessity that you had to go yeah. that far down in order to get yeah. made in the price point you wanted. Yeah, definitely. It was definitely a necessity. You know, we've had previous relationship with these mills and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, the older the factory, the older the mill, the trust factor that they have with a young brand is, is not there, right? Because they're used to dealing with some of the biggest and best names out there who don't ask for terms when you need payment terms and don't ask for free sampling and this and that. And when you're a young brand and you need all that to, to scale, they start looking at you like, are you going to be here next season? So, and right. I, I completely get it from from their side too. Right. So. right. And so has the depth that you go kind of backwards vertically yeah. changed at all as you've scaled or have you still go that deep? So, you know, with economies of scale, you're able to even get a better margin than you would if you're sourcing that deep. So now we have a better relationship with everyone we're working with and, you know, we're ordering a lot more, which we're able to, you know, kind of use the commodities markets and buy futures and stuff like mm. that. So we buy a lot of raw material still, but it, what they call longer yardage. So we're able to buy a lot more 
and save money and then kind of hold material as well. So we weren't able to do very early on was, especially with, with a lot of our cotton shirting and stuff like that, prices fluctuate with right. the cotton markets. So we had to buy at the time, we had to buy ready goods. So for us, it was, it was really cost demanding, right? So as we've scaled, we've been able to say, okay, well, we'll buy all this yardage for our white shirts or for stuff that we could constantly replenish. So we've been able to be, you know, do that. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like the predictability of everything and the skews in the fabric is yeah. so much more increased. I'm sure Tower only would add to that Correct. as well. We focus on a forecasting tool, uh, which is called Tower Maker. And basically what it's constantly doing is every time we release products, it's working on an algorithm that's based around projections. If we had this much stock, this is how many in this size we would have needed based on trajectory of the customer. So we're always looking at how the customer buys, how the customer is buying this product over a short-term basis, over a long-term basis, and over an even longer-term basis so that we can understand the skew on a really granular level. So it's been able to help us with our inventory. A lot of our customers will say, yeah, CG is great. And, you know, they've always had inventory issues. That's something that we're looking to turn the corner on in 2017 now that mm. we have all this data. We've been really lucky with our facilities and they're ex extending a lot of terms with us and we're growing really rapidly with our factories. So every year for us is a learning curve and we're always willing to learn. And we love the criticism as much as we love the praise because it's giving us real-time feedback that, it, you know, essentially in a wholesale business, you wouldn't get nor would you care because you're relying right. off a buyer's relationship. So I'm curious to kind of go, it's five years old, yeah? Yeah. So I, I've like kind of roughly through each of those years in terms of like, where was the business at? And then how yeah. has it evolved since then? Yeah. Um, given, I assume so much has happened in mm -hmm. such a short amount of time. So in 2012, it was a complete shitstorm for us. It was like, okay, we have this value proposition we've launched we've launched off of our own cash and we are essentially building a really small unique customer base and really early on it was guys just buying our blue shirts and our white shirts from us and that's kind of what we were known for and we knew very early on that we needed to grow the SKU level to really help and build this brand so we started putting some money behind advertising facebook advertising stuff like that and we quickly realized, okay, we're going to need some outside capital. And that came pretty quickly. I think one of the things that we, you know, we saw was that the word fashion tech or the world of fashion tech in 2013 was very small. You had a few companies, no exits, fully unproven. It was a hard time to raise a seed round at that point. And I was, you know, benefit of meeting a gentleman by the name of William Young from the Vegas Tech Fund or what's now known as Vegas Tech Capital, I think it is. And, you know, Will from a very early age really believed in the company and he saw what I think a lot of people were not seeing was that, hey, this is a direct company. These guys are backed by extreme know-how in the supply chain world. And they're focused on this core group of products that doesn't go out of season. Mm. And those were the three components that I think he really, really enjoyed. And Tony Shea and the rest of the Vegas Tech Fund. I was going to ask, is it yeah. part of is yeah. part of Tony Shea's exactly, work on that yeah. So it's, uh, it's Zach Ware, Tony Shea, yep. and Will Young, and Fred Mossler as well. And they said, hey, dude, we love this. Here's your angel money. Here's your first round. And quickly, a group of investors kind of followed in on that syndicate round. And uh, we were off to the races. And what we found was that very shortly after in 2013, as we started to focus on product and expand and we built our first suit, we learned a lot. It was, you know, what does the consumer want? What do the fits look like? Obviously, in a tailored suit, there are different components to all different kinds of suits, whether it comes to lapel or fit or, or all that kind of stuff. We skinned our knees, learned a lot about what the consumer wants, what we were doing wrong, what we should focus on. So that was pretty much 2013 was R&D on the product. 2014 was kind of refining the product and also expanding the product lines, which was also a big proponent to 
developing the brand. What is and who is the combatant gentleman and what is this guy looking for and who are we as a company? That was really focused in 2014. We really started to build a brand message. And in 2015 is when we started to hit huge growth. They talk about hockey stick growth and all that kind of good stuff. That's when we really started to see the scale happening at an immense pace. And we started to see our sales numbers skyrocket to numbers that we've never really seen before. And, and we also, in 2014, we hit profitability and we were able to remain profitable all the way through till today, basically. So we haven't raised any capital since then. But at the same time, you know, we're always looking for the right strategic partner. So it's not like we wouldn't. It's just one of the biggest things for us was before we go and strap on this crazy valuation and do all this tech world stuff was have we built a business that has lasting power, that has legs, that is being responsible, that is growing at a responsible rate, that's not going to basically find themselves in a need for cash every five to six months. So we were lucky enough to be able to find that. And you know, as we grew in 2016, it's all been about how do we refine these things? How do we kind of polish all the things that we skyrocketed through in, from 2013 to 2015? And 2017 for us is going to be the year about really kind of showing that polished product and opening up a lot of offline for us. And what we've learned over the years, every year we've done a few pop-ups, is that the offline and omni-channel experience does really well for our product. A lot of guys like a tailor on staff, a lot mm -hmm. of our guys want to know what their fit is. A lot of our guys, believe it or not, don't know their suit size. So it's really interesting to see and teach and help guys when they need it the most. So that's what 2017 is going to be about. Uh, we're opening up four Bloomingdale stores next or actually this week. So we're excited about that as well. Very cool. I'm curious to talk a bit about kind of fit online because I yeah. think I, in a different kind of time, spent a lot of time looking at these solutions recently, yeah. and it seems to be a very unsolved problem from a tech perspective. Yeah. But I assume there are also very specific considerations that you have to take into account, especially on a suiting or something as core as that. Yeah. We're lucky in the sense that I'm a pattern maker, which I'm, I'm a tailor, so I've made all the patterns for our product. And Scott is really good with technology. So what we've been able to do is specifically for suits fits is we've been able to use the pattern that we made in the marker and the grading and correlate each size to BMI, so a body mass mm. index. So what he's done is built an algorithm that basically you ask four simple questions and it'll spit out the nearest suit size for you. We focus on ready to wear. We don't believe in online made to measure at all. We just think it's a really tough thing to do and it's a very high return rate. And then we feel that our guys are immediate customers, so they like stuff right away. But you know, we've been able to, like I said, go backwards and focus on BMI to size ratio, and it's worked out pretty well. There are a lot of companies out there, like you said, that are trying to do a lot of stuff in fit, whether it's fashion metric, I think there's is one. Body labs, yeah, so, yeah, there's there's tons. I think one of the things that we've always seen is they're always missing the tailor, right? right. And they have the body guys, they have the scanners, you put on this body suit and stand in front of your computer and hold a quarter, all this kind of crazy shit. But what a lot of companies, I think, don't get is that, dude, you need someone to understand fit of clothes, right? right. There's bow and there's drape and there's all sorts right. of different things that come in, into effect. Which are and not really technal either, right? Exactly. They're, they're like experiential and exactly. style. So if you're, if you're wearing a suit versus if you're wearing a hoodie, they all have different metrics of how they're going to drape on the body, right? So you really have to take that into consideration when you're talking about fit metrics. And right. it, it's a different world, but it's going to be interesting to see who wins that game for sure. Right. And so it sounds like you built your own tool. Yeah, we, we built our own tool because, you know, really it's about teaching our guy what suit size they are because it's almost like a shoe size to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. If you're a 40 regular, you're more than likely going to be a 40 or 42 regular in most brands, right? So it's a lot easier for us. But we've definitely been pitched by a number of these fit tech companies and it's been 
it's always been interesting to look at the technology, but I think for us, we still believe in building everything in-house. Yeah. So I'm curious to talk a bit about a retail and kind of what those early experiments were and kind yeah. of what you learned from them and then how that's kind of informed the plan that yeah. is getting rolled out. Yeah. So for us, as we've grown, I think we weren't those guys who said, we'll never go offline. I'm from the offline world. I've owned stores. My parents have owned stores. So we know the value of what a fitting room can do to your brand. So we've always had it in the business plan. I think the overall thing was, how do we crawl before we walk, before we run, and all that kind of good stuff. So every year, we made it a point to do at least one pop-up shop. So in 2013, we did a pop-up shop in New York City uh, for 10 days. We've done pop-up shops in Nordstrom's. We've done pop-up shops all over, You know, whether it be LA, we've done one in Seattle, we've done in Chicago, DC, we've done a few. We wanted to learn, okay, what do we need to get there? What do our guys want? Do they want this guide shop-like experience or do they want to take cash and carry type of thing? Our guys don't like the God Shop experience. Mm. They want to be able to buy their product and take it home with them. I understand why. I understand both sides of that coin. And we do get guys who say, hey, ship it to me. So I think having the idea of having both of those options is great. Taking those learnings in and creating those lasting effects was really important to us. And it kind of led to what we did earlier this year, which is in July, we opened our first actual independent shop in Santa Monica. We're really close with the guys over at Maysearch, which is a, a huge mall developer. And they said, hey, why don't you guys put your first toe into the water and come on over in Santa Monica, even though it's not our, obviously our, the biggest part of our cohort is in the East Coast in New York hmm. City. But we said, great, like we're close to our warehouse, we're close to the office, we can learn, we can test, we can try things. And that store has really opened up our eyes to the fact that, holy shit, we need more stores, right? This converts high, the average order value goes up, and we're able to help our consumers on such a granular level, whether it's for a wedding or for a job interview or a date, whatever it is, we're able to have these communications in real time and help the guy out. So again, we saw that, we tested it, and now we're opening up four small shop-in-shop experiences in Soho of New York, Tyson's Corner in DC, in Chicago, we're in North Michigan, and over here in Orange County at South Coast Plaza. So all that kind of led to this and eventually it'll lead into full-on flagship stores, which is what we're looking forward to next year. Yeah, so I'm curious to hear a bit more about kind of the Bloomingdale's because it sounds like you did Norsom before and Bloomingdale's is rolling out this week. And so I'm sure on the surface that seems a lot, right? You're yeah. going into another person's store, yeah. but I'm sure there's obviously a lot of yeah. thinking behind yeah. that so, as well. So what you're seeing right now in the retail space is you're seeing these big kind of anchor stores, whether it be Macy's, Nordstrom's, or Bloomies start to look at their business models a little bit and say, hey, you know what? The wholesale industry is really shrinking. It's really changing. We need to bring in new brands that don't necessarily wholesale because their margins are focused on going direct to consumer. So with Nordstrom's is a little bit different. We did a program with Olivia Kim, who's running all their creative over there. She's amazing. She hit us up and said, hey, I love what you guys are doing. We're doing a Heartbreakers thing for Valentine's Day. We want CG to be in the stores that we're doing the menswear stuff in. So we said, all right, let's do it. Let's try it. Like We'll do it it's for 48 hours and what we saw immediately is that we were killing it. You know, we were doing massive sales within 48 hours. We saw like, hey, this is a great, great avenue for us. But when it came down to it, you know, we couldn't manage to do a full on wholesale deal with them because we just didn't build the margins in for that from the beginning of the company. Right. We could raise our prices, but again, that's not our ethos. We'll not do that. So we said, we'll hold up here. And what happened was Bloomingdale's came around and said, hey, we saw you guys in Nordstrom's. We think what you guys did was great. We have a program that we do, which is called a concession shop. Right. Right. And they basically give you, they're no different than a landlord. They basically carve out a section of, of their floor for you. You pay them a rent and basically you can 
full on build out. And obviously, right. they don't offer this to anyone, but you have to have some kind of proven brand and brand awareness. And we were really happy because they didn't have an affordable, tailored brand, right? Bloomingdale's suits are Hugo Boss, Varvados, Brioni, Canali, the, the old school names, Zanias that are major bucks. But when it came to an affordable cost and a great quality product, it wasn't there. So they said, hey, we'd love to have you guys there. And here's some stores that we think that would be good for you. We, we checked out our data and these four stores mm. fit really, really well into our demographic. So we basically run the entire shop. It's our employees. All of our guys are trained on our product. And we're able to kind of run this store within a store without having to spend this egregious amount of money and rent and, and not know uh, before we, you know, again, crawling before we walk and run. What was one of the, the biggest lessons or assumptions that was proven wrong as you started to explore retail that you had in the beginning that maybe, you know, just yeah. doing it changed? You know, I think for us, it was the guide shop kind of like experience, which it didn't work for a guy at all. Mm. You know, they just didn't understand it. All of our pop-ups were you order it here, we'll send it to your house. And it just didn't work for a guy. Our guys were running in because they had a wedding this Saturday or they had you know a meeting to go to, something like that, where because of the, the practicality of the product, they can't wait. Right? right. And they're using us as a tool. And once we started to realize we are the tool chest for it, so we need to be able to provide this in a much timelier manner. So they need to take it off the rack and leave. And that's kind of the first thing that we really learned. And uh, the second thing was having a tailor on staff. Our guys would love to get the pants hemmed and the jacket taken in or this or that right then and there. So now we have tailors on premise. So I think when you look at like the middle of the market, we start to see that companies like Zara are kind of affecting consumers in the way that you see a lot of people today that will go buy like a Zara core piece and then yep. they'll mix it with something that's yep. higher and luxurious. I mean, yep. Do you see that with your yeah. customers as well? Who are yeah, mixing we see up it down? with accessories. Like we see it with belts and stuff like that, that guys will go out and pick up higher end belt and stuff like that. You know, then again, we see guys who aren't looking to stand out. Their corporate clothes aren't ones that need to scream anything. You know, we launched shoes earlier this year, which was a huge request by our guys. We had well over 20, 30,000 guys hit us up and say, hey, wow. I bought a $160 suit. I can't go to Allen Edmonds and spend 250 to 300 bucks, even more sometimes on a pair of shoes. Where can I go? Because Aldo doesn't make quality stuff. So we spent the time, we created ToeCap, which is our second brand and blew up and started selling like crazy. So we thought footwear was going to be tough because a lot of guys want to wear these name brands. But I think at the end of the day, what we see more and more is our consumer, once they're able to see past the name brand and that you're paying for that name, everything becomes a question at that point, right? And we saw that with footwear. So it's been interesting yeah. for us. On that kind of name brand part, what's CG's way to kind of prove out the quality and the price point of what you're getting yeah. to say, hey, you know, leave that other thing aside. I promise this is as good, if not better than right. what you would get. With yeah, a, a we, fancy we do, you know, we do a lot of things very early on. We did like blind suit tests where we had people try on unlabeled mm. like Hugo Boss suits and our suits and all that kind of stuff. But I think more than anything, we just ask our guys to try the suit on, right? When you put it on and you feel good and you feel comfortable, you feel powerful and you feel like you're ready to achieve something. And that's the ultimate goal, right? Is we let the product speak for itself, like let it go out there and people can try it on. And if they like it, amazing. If they don't, hey, we'll try something else, whether it's another fit or something like that. But we don't really feel like we have to come out with slogans or like, you know, there's a lot of direct consumer brands who are using a lot of stuff out there. We just feel like, hey, we are making an amazing product at an amazing price point. Try it out. If you like it, we're super stoked. How did you decide to start with menswear and then 
kind of focus on that and is women's wear interesting or yeah. it's a lot of different yeah there's actually some women's suits up there that we're sampling right now oh, um you know no plans for women's right now we, we get at least five to six requests a day <laughs> uh for women's wear my background is in women's wear i started off as an apprentice seamstress i've always done alterations and stuff and work on women's wear in my time my spare time i have a pet women's wear brand mm. that will never probably ever see the light of day but that's kind of where I started. And I think for us, in terms of the business side of, of us as entrepreneurs, we were like, hey, what is the biggest market and what is the biggest untapped market? And we said menswear, corporate essentials. And hmm. again, solving that problem was the number one thing for us is like, look, there are a lot of people that can create brands and we wanted to help our friends. And what our friends were going through at that time was I can't afford shit. Help me afford shit. Right. And that's not garbage. Right. So we saw that again, but you know, as we expand and as we do a lot of different things and, and how Tower has developed and, and all this stuff, we definitely have thought about expanding further. We have an idea for a men's home furnishing brand. We have ideas for like a women's brand. We have all these ideas. These have come to our head, but right now we're really focused on the menswear side. Totally. And do you think that the lessons that you've learned on the menswear side apply equally to the other verticals yeah, or women's? Or definitely. Some it, it applies to all verticals, I think. You know, you really have to be open-minded when it comes to the mistakes you've made and have to admit them as soon as you've made them. Because I guess today in the product world, you have to be really quick and you have to fall down, you have to get back up, you have to fall down, you have to get back up real quick. Because there are a lot of people who are coming up and trying to do different different things. And we recognize that. I think the biggest thing for us is to constantly learn on the job, right? Is understanding, listening, keeping your ears open and trying new things as much as you can without kind of deterring yourself from the brand. Right now, Tower is totally exclusive to yeah. CG. Are yeah. there plans or interest to start to open that up? Or? Yeah, we've actually beta tested two brands on it in the past and they've loved it. We've hmm. revoked access and taken it away because... We started to see the power of it. And also we started to see the demand of what a sales engineer and, and some people that we would need to hire to keep supporting other brands. Mm -hmm. It's definitely something we've talked about at length. It's definitely something that a lot of people have asked for. In fact, I was just on a call about it literally right before <laughs> we started this. You know, for us, again, that's our background. It's technology and supply chain. So it's no wonder that we've built this thing. I think right now we want to be really selfish with it and help our companies grow and, and TOCAP and, and CG, you know, because as we get bigger, so does the software and so does the software start to learn more. But we've definitely had conversations with a ton of people, whether it be our investors or other brands of having Tower be this full sourcing platform that we've set up for it and all this kind of good stuff. It's a thought, but it's definitely not something that we're ready to do just yet. Yeah, I, I've always found it interesting to kind of look at products where the company that development is kind of mission critical to them. So you look at Slack, which runs on Slack or yeah. AWS, which runs on AWS and kind of that, it's almost kind of the most powerful incentive you yeah. can have to align yeah. innovation or whatever it takes. Yeah. I mean, we, we're inspired by the guys over at Slack all the time. I mean, this company lives off Slack mm -hmm. and we live off Tower, right? Like we can't move if Tower is not working or something's wrong. Or, I mean, it's integrated all the way down to the CRM. So everyone on those phones over there are on tower and that's wow. how they communicate with the customer. That's how they work all the way down to the order level, right? So to us, it's probably one of the most important parts of the company and it's something that's been able to grow with the company. Every time we have a new inflection point or something's changing or something's happening, the first thing we do is fix tower and hmm. see how we can get the technology to get there first before we need to be there. Did you know you needed tower and that it would be as all encompassing as it is today or did that evolve? No, that totally evolved, right? What we saw was A, we were broke and we couldn't afford shit that Salesforce makes. 
weeks, yeah. right? And then once we were able to afford it and other supply chain software out there, it was like, oh, this is for wholesale, right? It's like, oh, this doesn't really work right. for direct consumer. They don't understand the immediate markets, right? No one really wants their factories to log into their backends because they don't have any user privileges and all that kind of stuff. So Scott, the, the supply chain guy, he is in the background. He's like, screw it. We're just going to make our own shit and, and see how it works. It was a long build to get it off the ground and up and running in its first and early stages. Probably took about a year and a half. Wow. I guarantee people thought we were insane. People thought we were crazy. But, you know, we had this vision that if we can control all the data that comes in and goes out, we are now the smartest person in the room without having to hire people. And that was our number one thing. We just did not want to hire these exorbitant amounts of salaries, right, to build this part of the company. We felt that if this is just data that's crunched in Excel, it mm. should be able to be computed in Tower. Right. And if you start to look kind of more closely at the tech stacks of all these brands today, just kind of the number of point solutions and the systems that don't talk, it's effectively crippling and yeah. holding it back. I mean, that, and that's what Tower is. It's a, right. it's a bunch of APIs talking to each other. Right. And that's really what we wanted was this aggregate build of APIs that could talk to back and forth to one another. So we're connected directly into UPS with our API or directly connecting into our warehouse with their API. Same with MongoDB, all this kind of stuff. We're able to have real-time conversations and we're able to pull out the data that's pertinent to that person at that time. One thing that we saw early on was, okay, there's open access to all this data and people are getting data paralysis, right? And it doesn't help anyone. So really we've kind of broken it down into microservices and now we've right. been able to scale that way. Totally. I'm curious kind of the process was and if there were any challenges, you know, getting all of your partners on board with this because obviously the fashion industry kind of thrives on working via third parties. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what that was like. So, you know, we were lucky enough that, you know, we just raised a seed round and a lot of the companies that we raised from we're just getting into direct consumer, right? And I think we had the most people from fashion, I guess you could say, in our wheelhouse. So it was more about, okay, well, do what you do because that's great. You know what you're doing. And if you want to add technology layer on top of it, sweet, yeah. like do it. And we just kept testing along the way. We never disrupted the business by any means. So we were running on Spree while we were building Tower. Until we knew that Tower could handle what Spree could handle, we never poured it over. We had redundant systems as well, right? So even once we were on Tower, we just kept Spree running in the background just to make sure if anything happens, we're there. So our number one concern and goal was like the business has to become first, right? And if anything's affecting that, it doesn't matter what it is, if it's out of the box or built, it has to work, right? So we never let that happen. And I think that's the biggest thing for us is that that we're not in the Valley, we're not in New York, we don't take these drastic measures or these big pivots that I think a lot of other companies do because we're nested in Orange County, mm -hmm. right? And we're able to really hunker down and make sure everything's working and we don't hear the noise from everyone else and we just kind of focus on what we need to focus on. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to think about removing yourself entirely from yeah. the noise, which is so much of it, but I've always kind of just had this thesis that the most interesting brands are the worst businesses and the most boring ones in a way are the best businesses. Yeah, if you yeah. can kind of just like stop being selfish about yeah. you know, one's own image in, in definitely. the world. Definitely. I mean, that's why we're in Orange County, right? Yeah. Like we, we like don't, cares? yeah, we don't <laughs> want the loss. We don't want to hear about other people. I don't give a shit about who's doing what. I mean, if you're a competitor, I care about you because I'm going to break you. But at the end of the day, like our whole ethos is around our culture, our guys, we want to see our guys elevate. So that's why it's a small bunch, you know, 26, 30 people. 
almost everyone's been here for at least two years, right? And that's something that's very interesting to me as we've grown because they've been able to see the trajectory of the company and actually see where their work has helped the company mm. scale, right? And that's something that's really hard because we started in the Valley. We were based out of San Francisco when we launched and we saw that, you know, anyone we brought on or anything, it was within, you know, a month and a half and it, something new or flashy wasn't coming out, that person would leave. And it was really difficult for us to build a community. And over here, we've been able to build a great community. I mean, we have a comp sci school down the street in UCI. We have, you know, people from UCLA, US, big college town. It's not difficult to find people who are really interested, but the people who work here and the people who've built it have really been able to get hands on and see this stuff grow. Right. And it sounds like they've sticked around as a result yeah, of that. Yeah. And we're happy because we have very little turnover and it's exciting because every year it's been something else and something new and whether it's been Bloomingdale's or Nordstrom's or we did a big thing with GQ last mm -hmm. year. It's like, it's been a lot of great stuff. I'm curious about kind of the growing trend of kind of like the casualization of the workplace. Looking at everyone here are dressed pretty yeah, casually yeah. and kind of how you square that formal corporate with kind of what seems to be like where the some of the trends are going, at least in smaller companies. Yeah, definitely. So we get that question a lot. We love it because we think the world of tailored clothing is changing. It's adapting, right? I think the idea is that we are adapting with it, right? So we do a huge blazers business, right? We do a huge button-down shirt business. We do a huge chinos business. So really... All we see is the staples kind of modernizing and, and toning itself down a little bit. So even if, like, for example, we just heard that PwC, one of the mm -hmm. big four accounting firms, they went corporate casual officially on all their offices. And then we saw a huge spike in our Chino sales, right? Mm. So for us, it's like, look, it's just changing. It's just evolving. There are still, our suits are still going to be sold because, again, our guys, if they want to elevate, our guys are aspirational. They want to wear those suits. They want to do that. So we're happy. We think it opens up a lot more stuff for us in the blazer community and the shirt community and stuff like that because that's that's really fun for us as, as a younger bunch who doesn't always wear suits ourselves all the time. I'm curious also about the wedding part of it because yeah. it would seem that you would be incentivized to have as few weddings as possible as a person. And so yeah. it's somewhat of yeah. a one-time purchase. But I'm curious kind of what the thinking and then that, that, yeah. that play is there. Yeah. So the wedding side of our business is actually 25% of the business, wow. which is shocking to a lot of people. You know, for us... We're competing with like shitty rentals, right? Mm -hmm. And guys don't really necessarily want to wear rentals. They go to men's warehouse and they have a timer. And you get it back the next day and it's like altered how many people have worn it. So for us, we've been able to put together a weddings business that has zero dollars in marketing behind it. It's all viral. And what we've seen is that once one millennial gets married, the group or all the groomsmen, they're going to start dropping like flies. So it just it's on to the next one. Hmm. And it's a very, very organic, scalable, growable business within those little cohorts of weddings itself. Right. So we've seen that grow substantially year over year over year. It's been a huge part of the business only get bigger. I mean, next year we're projecting it to be well over 35% of wow. the business, right? So it's exciting. It's fun because we get to hear all these great stories and see all these great pictures. But at the same time, we get to be a resource to our guy, right? Like we're selling the suits at $160 and guys can also wear that suit again or wear it to another wedding right. or the tux again to an end of the year gala event or something like that. So it has a multi-purposeful feeling. And what we tell our guys is it's better than rentals because this is yours now. Once you've gotten right. hemmed and taken in, keep it in your closet because I'm sure you're going to another wedding um, right. or it, something along those lines yeah. again in the that near season's future. That season's chaos. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And yeah, and it sounds like it's effectively the same cost as a rental once yeah. and you got to keep it and it's yours. Exactly. It is. And, and you know, the thing that we, we get from a lot of guys is, I don't know who's worn this because if I wore it and I gave it back, I can only imagine what right. the other guy did before it. So for us, it's like, 
the value proposition is there. It's a really important part of the business, and we love it. It is hands-on, but it, it is exciting to be able to help that many guys out. I feel like the price points of CG stuff are very, very reasonable, and I'm curious kind of how you achieve that and then keep that both from a like material sustainability perspective, yeah. but also from a labor one as well of yeah. like, being that competitive. Yeah. So we have three tiers of suits, basically. So we have our $160 suit, which is kind of like our automated line, $160 laser cut. It's very precision based. It's a 100% replenished product. We have our mezzanine collection, which is focused around a little bit more of a fashionable aesthetic where it's window panes and herringbones and stuff like that. And then we have our summit collection, which is all branded mills, mm -hmm. right? So what we wanted to do was show the differences between all the three and show the price point differences between all the three so our guys can kind of grow into those. And what we've been able to do is focus on different factories for different. So $160 suits made in a very, very, very large factory, very automated, a lot of precision, still hand still hand built, um, but all the materials are, we forecasted the materials, we're buying all this stuff in bulk, we're buying all the raw materials in bulk, buttons, everything, you name it. The mezzanine collection is made in a smaller factory that's focused on what we call small batch runs. So mm -hmm. we'll do like... 600 meters, 700 meters, sometimes 1200 meters, just a smaller run just to test the market, see if people like it. And if it goes good, then we'll replenish it for good. And then Summit is the third collection, which was our highest end. It starts at anywhere from 250 to 350, which is a branded mill, meaning the mill is giving us their designs, whether it's Barbaris, Marlane, all these guys. Mm. And we're able to make suits from their stuff. The fourth collection, which is launching next week, is called Summit Made in Italy, which is a full suit made in Italy from 100% from scratch, which starts at 350 and goes up to 450. Again, we're able to do that by buying all the raw materials in advance and hold in stock and do all that kind of stuff. But again, we do all that ourselves. We don't let the final production facility do anything but make the goods. And that's important to us because all of our facilities are on the higher end, right? All single needle and everything is done by a tailor. They're very highly paid individuals. They're not these mass manufactured right. stuff. And if it is mass manufactured, like our $160 suit, it's done automated. So it, it, there's not that many people involved until it gets to the sewing process. So we've been really lucky to be able to do that. Again, there's still enough margin in the product to pay your people really, really well. At the same time, not have to worry about you know, these these kind of sweatshop factories, because again, they're not going to be making suits. It's too difficult. Right. They're usually making something around like knits, t-shirts. Right. Like more that. the commodity. Correct. Items. Correct. Gotcha. With such a wide kind of skew assortment and these different collections in brand lines and manifestations, how do you still stay focused and decide what to focus on? Because yeah. the styles seem wide, but yeah. I, is it fair to say that the skews themselves are actually quite tight? They're definitely wide but tight for sure. I think the idea was how do we create steps as our guys grow, right, it's like a how, ladder. Exactly. As our guys grow, how can we continue to be a resource for them? So if, if they grow all the way up to Summit Italy, I mean, that suit's a fully canvas suit, right? That thing is going to compete with some of the best suits in the market. It's moved by Alberto Caruso. Zad founded Caruso Menswear. It's now owned by Keton. Like, that guy's a badass in suit making. And at 450, that's still a steal, right? right? So we really wanted just to show our guys that there is steps, there's levels to this, and you can grow with these levels from the introductory guy. So you walked, you're an analyst, you just got out of college, you just need the basics, and then you're working up to partner, VP, MD. You can walk up into these steps, and, and we're still gonna have something for you. Sounds like it was not just the idea of like, hey, let's be lifestyle, but actually let's define that ladder for Correct. that lifetime Correct. customer. Just like our guys want to grow, so do our suits, right? And as I want their closet to grow too. We want to be able to support them in every part of their life. And that's why we've started a made-to-measure program, which is only offline, and you have to do it in one of our stores or in our offices. But we want to be able to have that high-impact suit. So if you want a custom tuxedo for your wedding or you want something special for something really big, that's what the made-to-measure side of the business is for. And we won't do it online, but we will definitely be there to do two fittings and make sure it's perfect. 
What were one or two of kind of the bigger surprises of selling online or becoming this vertical that you hadn't kind of anticipated from the beginning? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was, I guess, the response and the ma critical mass you could hit, right? For me, it was always about offline retail and Nordstrom's would sell my denim or something like that. And we would hear feedback from the buyer itself. We wouldn't really hear feedback right. from the customer unless they got our email or something like that. But, you know, getting real-time feedback has been a huge, huge, huge proponent of growth over here. We're able to be nimble and pivot really quickly and learn and fix and do and alter. And don't get me wrong. And any other company that tells you they haven't had bumps and bruises along the way is straight up bullshitting you. Like, those are our learning lessons, right? And we'll openly admit it. Like, okay, we should do it this way. You're right. This is a good insight. Right. Sometimes there's a reason not yes. to, you know, reinvent the wheel. Exactly, yeah. right? Like, we should do this. We should listen. So we're always open to that. It's always been a fun part of the business for us. And I think... That's been a huge proponent to growth. So what's kind of, if you look forward into, we talked a bit about 2017, but you know, one, two, three years ahead, where does this continue to go and kind of what are the focus areas? Yeah. So our, our focus areas are, again, still making quality product at a really affordable cost and expanding the SKU base, building up inventory, which is what our guys really want from us is continuing to expand in what we already have offline, being there in the major cities that our guys need us, being there with a tailor, also having immediate access to our product expanding the second line toe cap is definitely on top of the list. A lot of our guys want more and more and more and more and more styles, which we're super excited about. We're launching the Goodyear Welted portion of that brand mm. here next year. So we're super excited about that as well. We're continuing to listen to more and more ideas. But you know, one thing that a lot of guys ask for is that we're really big in Europe and English speaking countries like Australia. So launching international is a key on the list for sometime next year. We're really excited about that as well as international concession stores that we're talking about right now, which we can't mention too much about, but we're really totally. excited about that. So, you know, a lot of good stuff, a lot of good stuff. Totally. Where's the name from? You either love it or hate it, which is fun for me. The name is from, well, when we started the brand, we were watching a lot of Entourage and we saw Ari Gold, the character, <laughs> walk into an office and he had a paintball gun in yes. his hand. Oh, I love that scene. Blasting people in the face with it. We thought it was hilarious because he's wearing like a $4,000 Tom Ford suit. And we're like, all right, this guy's a combat gentleman. I think <laughs> what happened over time was that combat gent started becoming more of the name. And, and that's where we find ourselves today. But I think the biggest thing is that what it stands for, right, is that our guys are trying to make it somewhere, some way, somehow. And so are we, right, as a brand, as a company, and as entrepreneurs, right? It's this shared hustle that we have between our customers and us. And we want them to make it. They want us to make it. And that's kind of been the unique friendship that we've created is that we both see each other eye to eye. We respect each other's hustle. And we're super happy that we're both here in this kind of mix and how we're doing things. It's, that's kind of been the thing. And then as we've grown, CG has kind of been like the new mm. name, right? Everyone's been going with CG. So we're super happy that at least it sticks. When someone thinks about it, it's like, oh, okay, cool. Totally. So. And it's also kind of that soldier, that uniform, right? Yeah. For that day yeah. to day. No, definitely. Definitely. I think it, for some of these guys and some of the stories and some of the places they work, we hear some crazy stories. I mean, it is an army to a certain extent. Some of our guys, some of our customers are working from you know, 6 a.m. to, you know, 11, 30, 12, sometimes even later every night. And we hear these stories. We're like, Jesus, that's crazy. And they just don't want to think about some of this stuff. Exactly. They just no, want to it's count like, on it. you know, I use my couch as a closet and I'm going to put Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Boom. I'm going. I'm gone. I'm good to go. And we love that. We love helping out guys who don't have to think about it. They already put their ties on their shirts before they put the shirt on like it's already ready to go so we love those stories totally and then what's been the kind of the most exciting or rewarding part of this for you in the last kind of five years one it's been building a team that's really excited about what we're building and excited to help i think the biggest thing is we are here to help we exist to help we believe that brands who have a long-lasting staying power and long-lasting just power in general are helping and are creating a solution right you're seeing a lot of people whether it's Banana Republic or J. Crew in this middle market who are having a really, really tough time because 
they're not solving major problems and we're excited for ourselves because we get to help so many people every day. Right. It's not just creating um, stuff for correct. the sake of stuff. Correct. You know, one thing that I'm really proud of is how many other entrepreneurs we've been able to help and mm. talk to all the time. I love getting emails from young fashion entrepreneurs who want to try stuff and do stuff. And I myself try to be as helpful as humanly possible. There's a lot of stuff where I'll be super blunt as hell to people and be like, don't fucking do that shit. But, you know, sometimes it's good to hear that. I mean, there's some stuff that we've done here or here. We could have loved that that advice right. as well. You know, that's always fun to be able to help as many people again as we can. And that's the end goal for Combat Gentlemen is creating a brand that is going to help you get somewhere. Well, awesome, man. Thanks so much for talking. Thanks, man. A lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the 11th episode of the Loose Threads podcast. Join the newsletter at loosethreads.xyz and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. As I'm sure you can tell, Vishal is really awesome to talk to, both because of his passion and energy towards the subject and the expertise him and his company are working towards. It's really cool to see brands that are just heads down focused and don't always get wrapped up in all the press that this industry loves. We have an awesome roster of upcoming guests, including Stephen Allen and Matt Orley of their eponymous brands, and Stephen Agno, one of the co-founders of Lumi, a packaging startup based in Los Angeles. Thanks again for listening and talk to you soon.